Roxo Media House. Welcome back to Fortitude. I am J.W. Wilson, uh, the place where stories never die. Uh, thank you, Captex Bank, the Captex Bank Studios, where we sit today, Chan. Uh, they make all this possible for us. Today's guest, this man right here, Chan McRae. Some of you people out there have heard of him. Uh, he's got an incredible story we're about to talk about. Uh, Chan, first off, thanks for being here. We, we welcome you to the, to the Captex Studio in Fortitude. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Uh, you, you, sir, have uh, done quite a quite a bit in this early. You're fairly young for a guy who's accomplished so much, but you're an Albany, Georgia native. You've been a professional cyclist from 1996 through 2003. You're a triathlete, uh, continue to be a triathlete. You're currently with Austin PD as a bike patrol officer, correct? Correct. And you are now currently one of the directors of Roxo Racing, a female professional cycling team that will be uh, launched next year. Um, but backing up from the beginning, Albany, Georgia. How did, how did, tell me a little about Albany, Georgia and your childhood. Albany, Georgia, that's, that goes way back. But um, obviously my parents are from Georgia. Grew up in uh, Albany, but moved to Virginia early on. Um, memories in Albany are just, uh, just like a slow lifestyle, nice, mm -hmm. relaxed know enjoyed my time there but it, as short as it was i just remember like the people in georgia were awesome so how did cycling come its what come within, into your life how did you discover that you could ride a bike <laughs> or even triathlete type activities cycling did not enter my life until i moved to plano texas okay and that had to have been some time when i was in i think fourth fifth grade and uh at the same time, I moved to Plano, Texas. Um, this other guy moved to Plano, Texas. His name was Lance Armstrong. And I've heard about him, and we'll talk about yeah. him a little bit later, but you guys are about the same age? We're exact. Uh, yeah, he's born a month ahead of me. And so there, I don't know if you guys had it when you were growing up, but the president presidential physical fitness test, mm -hmm. like every elementary school used to do it. And I don't recall that, but I might have. <laughs> Now, there were these standards. It's like how many push-ups, how many pull-ups, sit-ups. Okay. Um, I think there was an eight-minute run involved and a few other things. But I went at Dooley Elementary School. I held the record. And then this new kid shows up who is Lance Armstrong now. And he claims that he crushed my record. And I was Which like, record are we talking about? The For the entire test across the board for the sit-ups, the push-ups, the pull-ups, and the eight-minute run. Okay. He said that his score, he outscored me, and he went faster than I did. And I was like, that's not true, because we weren't competing head-to-head. -head. The The gym teacher was just taking times, and, like, she never displayed the time. Fair. And I was like, no, you didn't beat me. And from that was in, I think, fifth grade. And from that day forward, it was game on. And grew up both entering triathlons, both entering cycling events. And I think at a, at a really early age, it was hyper competitive. Were you guys friendly competitive or was it beat each other yeah. no matter what? I think you would probably call it frenemy. Frenemy. Okay. <laughs> so to this day, it's still probably called frenemy. Frenemy. Beautiful. 
I got a few people I could put in that category of that too. <laughs> um, when did you when did you personally realize that you were good? You were better than the average cat at riding a bicycle. Uh, that was probably at the U.S. National Professional Long Course Triathlon Championships, where two, at least two guys of the big four, which were Mark Allen, Scott Molina, Dave Scott, and Scott Tinley. They were the guys who like dominated Hawaii Ironman mm-hmm. uh, back in the day. And Dave Scott was definitely at the race and Lance was at the race. And I came out of the water like pretty much with Dave Scott and almost out biked Dave Scott. And then Lance beat both of us off the bike and had about probably five minutes on Dave Scott and I going into the run and I ran Lance down and Dave Scott ended up winning the event and I, or and there's another guy named Kenny Glaw. He might've, he was either maybe Kenny Glaw won Dave Scott was second and I was third or fourth. But at that point in time, the um, U.S. Olympic training center um, for the cycling took notice of both of us, Lance and I, and they recruited us to go to Colorado Springs, live at the Olympic training center and go race in the junior world championships in road cycling in Moscow, Russia. Oh, wow. And that was um, kind of where it all began. Okay. That it's about, what year was that when that happened? I, I think it was 89 and I was a senior, either a junior or senior in high school. And I had to leave my Plano East high school. Mm-hmm. I had to move out to the Olympic training center. I had to do all of my credits remotely, uh, got through that and then from that pretty much the junior world championships forward, I, you know, put everything into professional cycling. Oh, wow. I see in 96, you finally, you turned, did you turn pro in 96? It well, was amateur up to that a- point. Amateur back then, what we were paid amateurs. Okay. And I mean, I could make a living doing it. We were paid quite well through USA cycling. And then in 96, um, I really probably should have turned pro in 1995 because I'd won the national championships for amateurs in 95. And you also won at 92. Yeah, I won at 92, but I was still quite young, so I wasn't ready mm-hmm. to go pro yet. But in 95, I was ready. And I went to, so in 95, I went to Tour of China. Uh, the current world champion was in the race, Gianni Bugno, and also a good friend of mine, uh, Jonathan Vodders, who runs EF right now, mm-hmm. um, was in the race as well with his team. And we were racing to the top of this climb that finished on the Great Wall of China. Oh, wow. And the race was super fast. I was having a really good day. Uh, Gianni Buño, who's the world champion, somehow after it whittled down to five or six riders, it was myself and Gianni Buño, and I was climbing next to him. I was like, this is awesome. And mm-hmm. I ended up beating him. And then Jonathan Vodder's team that he was riding on, on Santa Clara Porcelana, took notice that I just beat Gianni Buño. And they asked me to race for them the next year in 96. Oh, wow. And that's how... I, that's what started my career in Europe. This is, uh, I'm going to butcher the the pronunciation, but is it, was it Porcelana? Yes. Porcelana, Santa Clara, Samara? Samara, so that, that was the Russian side of the Beautiful. Things. That was nice. That was your first uh, team you're getting paid. If we can ask, uh, what, what kind of money are we talking about at 96, your first contract? Is it 
Can we mention it? it was, yeah, you can mention it. it. It's not if you even consider it worth mentioning, but I think back then um, they're like, you can ride for us. We don't have much money. We can pay you like $10,000, but it's a good opportunity for you to like show yourself and get yourself in the spotlight and get to a bigger program. It's exactly what it did, right? It did, it did that. How are you making ends meet around that 10, if that 10,000 was your, was your, your base salary, how are you making other money by winning races and things like that? Well, so Santa Clara actually provided the housing. I lived in Lyon, Spain in a flat with, I think eight Russians mm-hmm. and myself and Jonathan Vodders and they would pick us up if we were racing in Spain, drive us to the races, drive us back. Our food was provided because there was a restaurant below the flat that, I mean, the food wasn't very, uh, to this day, I can't believe I ate that food because there weren't any nutrients in it, but I ate it and it sustained us. And uh, the the guys on the team were awesome. I mean, this there is was a fun some, existence, I'm guessing, right? Because you're with your element, you're with your guys, and it's all about cycling, right? It's all about cycling, and you're just going from race to race to race. So you're and not complaining. You're not unhappy. You're you're loving this this period of your life. They're taking care of you, and you're you're performing. There was some. I mean, we weren't always performing though. Sometimes we were getting our butts handed to us, mm-hmm. and you know, you'd come out of those races, and you're just like, we, I just got completely destroyed. Um, there were races like Vuelta Pays Basque, which is probably the hardest five-day stage race in this in the world to this day. That I just remember that it was just me off the back with like ten or fifteen other guys just struggling to make the time cut. And but that's what pushed me to the next level. So um, why that, did the, why did that only last a year? You moved on to Die Continentale the next that, year. So the team went bankrupt. Is, um, so that before we move on, but is that a common thing with sports teams? Because I see a lot of these uh, go out of business because they run out of money. It's the sponsor just stops being interested in paying that or being able to pay for it, so the team dies. Yeah, well, simply put, simply put, yeah. That's it's. I think nowadays it's like if you're talking about a world team, it's not. It won't go down like that. But right. back then, it was just like, okay, let's land the sponsor. Let's you know perform the best we can. I hope they're in for the next year. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way it went. Like for like, it, that was in the late nineties. Uh, since is, then it's evolved. Where's your frenemy and all that during this time, 96, 97. So where is he, where is he's he racing for Motorola, okay, which is a, a world team and he's definitely thriving. He became a uh, world champion and yeah. So, he was world champion. I think it was 94 or 95 or something like that. And, but in 96, um, unfortunately it was diagnosed with, uh, testicular cancer and had to take some time off. But I mean, he came back from that really strong in 97. Mm -hmm. So in 97, you're with the, is it Dicontinentale? Dicontinentale. It's actually like, yeah, it's part of the, it has connections with the Dortmund, uh, FC team. Okay. You won the Lancaster Classic. You uh, in the f- the first Union Invitational, you a couple of seconds and thirds. That was a really s- big year for you. It was a huge year for you, actually, right? That that opened the door for me. Uh, I was pretty much saved. My career was saved by a, a guy on the national team. His name's Chris Yankee, and he's like, "Hey, I'm racing for this German small pro team, Decontinentale. If you." want come to my orca join us there and then 
we'll get you to some of the biggest races in Germany. And if you're good, we'll get back to the States as well and just perform, man. And you're on track, but we still got to finish it off. Right. This sounds like an amazing uh, existence. You're, li- you're traveling all over Europe. You're seeing it and you're seeing it on the road. I mean, I can't imagine a more desirable thing for an athlete to be doing. Uh, after uh, the, the second stop, you moved in 98, you went to Saturn, another company that went defunct, right? Another sponsor. Does Saturn even sell cars now? I don't really believe they're existing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't existence. think they exist yeah, anymore. So, uh, Saturn, when you were Saturn, you won a first in the in a ger- one of the German races that I couldn't pronounce, uh, and you got a couple seconds that same year as well. So, right. can we talk money? What what, what is what are you making in these days? Is it gone up so from ten? It went up like, was, I think I signed with Saturn for like thirty seven five thirty seven thousand five hundred. Uh so that was getting a little bit better, mm-hmm. and I um, I had the opportunity to lead a really good team at like the Peace Race, which was raced in the form formerly uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, right. East Germany, and when it was still well, it was it was Germany by then, but it was mm-hmm. still like you felt like you were in East Germany at times because <laughs> you're on that side of the wall, and that leading I led the Peace Race, and that was that race just has its notoriety and respect is huge. And I felt like it was just an honor to be there and be leading the race for six or seven days. Right. I didn't end up winning it, but I was close. And what's the prize money to win that race? Uh, first was probably somewhere between probably around $30,000. 30, okay. It's not like the Tour de France or anything like right. that. But. but you're not, you're, you're not making millions of dollars, but you're definitely earning enough to, to, save a little bit possibly and and do the things you want to do outside of cycling when season's over you're coming back to to texas right i was i end up you know price saving enough to put a down payment down on a house if you call that saving but sure after after the season like this during this time in your life you're on a professional team but are you having to have a job when you're not in season you come home are you just training no i was training full-time full-time i uh I mean, I was still on salary over the winter. It didn't stop. It's, you know, a yearly right. salary, so. And then it really kicks up. You get signed to Mapay, Quick Step in 99. Uh, huge team, huge known team, correct? It was the ranked number one in the world. For and, and you're riding with guys. I mean, can you name some of the, the, the faces that we're talking about? Uh, Johan Museo, mm-hmm. Tom Steeles, Freddie Rodriguez. Michelle Bartoli, Paolo Battini. Yeah, these are good these ones. These are all like classic winners. Perry Bay winners, Liege Bastogne League, mm-hmm. Edge uh, World Champions. So that environment was, it was the top. You can't go anywhere you went from there, as the manager of the team told me, you're going down. <laughs> anywhere. Who's <laughs> managing Mapay? Uh, Patrick Lefebvre. Okay. Is Jonathan Vodders, we know we know him in the cycling world as a, as a team manager, a director, but most people that I that we're familiar with don't know his his cycling prowess. Was he a was he a pretty good racer? Uh, he was an incredible climber. Incredible climber. Okay. Yeah. Um. You see, you you came in fifth in the world championships world championship road race that year. We went on the pay, but you just mentioned Perry Roubaix, the, the the hell of the north. Uh, can you tell us a little about that race because people who don't race, myself included can only imagine what that's like but you rode perry Roubaix, right no i did not, you did not um, okay. that team was such a high caliber team that 
I fit in more for the hilly type classics like mm-hmm. Liege, Bastogne, Liege, Lombardy, Flesh Wallon, um, stuff like that. Perry Roubaix, it requires a specialist. And that team, pay was stacked. There's like, if I would have made the team, I would have been the eighth person on the team. Right. But uh, no, I didn't race it with Mapay. I, um, when I became a director for the, um, under 23 team for slipstream, I did know how to recon that course. And we ended up getting mm-hmm. second and third in the under oh, 23 wow. version of Perry Roubaix. So I spent a lot of time reconning those cobblestones. It's an amazing place to be. Um, after Mapay, not to jump too far ahead, you joined Mercury Viatel, who's still around in the tour. Um, correct. And then that was a short stint. Went on, then on to us postal. Right. Where you finished your career for two years, right? Right, exactly. And that's where you were reunited with your frenemy, Mr. Lance. Um, in that period of time, though, you obviously you're in you're in the spotlight. You're riding the tour with somebody who's uh, obviously done what he did in the tour. But you're riding with some. You're again. You're on one of the best teams in the country or in the world. Excuse me, if not the best team, in some of the talents around you. In fact, you uh, you rode with names like. Christian Vandeveld, Floyd Landis, uh, Freddie Rodriguez, you told me, is one of your, still one of your friends. George Hincapie, Jan Ulrich. These are all, like, these are massive names. Roberto Haras, Tom Boonin. Uh, any, of the, any of those guys, any stories you can share with us about any of those particular names since they're on people's brain who maybe aren't the biggest cycling fans? All right. Well, obviously. Um... It's a lot of names. Sorry. <laughs> Pick one. Well, pick it was all well, Roberto Haras, Tom Bowen, and um, George Hancock, all come in, and Christian Vandeveld all come in and play because we were all on the same team for Velta Catalonia one year. And Haras took the lead. And this was right before the Tour de France. And I remember um, sitting there, just riding on the front every single day. And then I was like, I told Tom Bowen one day, I was like, okay, I, I think the. Um, Flemish word is Fullenbach, which means full gas. Mm-hmm. And it was right before a climb. And then, so when I told, this was before he was a big name and I was like, okay, hit it full gas. And we're doing like, I don't know, 40, 42 miles an hour on the flats and going around these roundabouts, just flying before we had to make a right-hand turn before the last climb of the day. And we destroyed like the whole bunch Mm-hmm. Um, the bunch is the Peloton and completely destroyed them, hit the climb. And the only guys left are like some of the guys on my team that weren't pulling. And then like 15 other guys. And then we finished the race and handicap. He's like, comes up to me. He's like, why did you tell Tommy to go full gas, man? That was way too fast. I was seeing, that I was pinned and I was like, I don't know, man. I just felt good. And I felt like we could just hammer it. And, uh, and then we ended up winning the race and, uh, Roberto was, uh, you know, the Walta Catalonia champion. So it all worked out. Mm-hmm. But I think the, it was even cooler though, when I became like Christian's direct, Vandeveld's director mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there directing and I'm doing the tactics for him in uh tour of Missouri. This slipstream. This is on slipstream. Mm-hmm. We were sponsored by Garmin at the time and he wins that and everything comes together. And then I go to the next big race, um, to Colorado. We get second there. Um, and then we go to tour of Utah and Tom Danielson is, um, one of my guys and I'm directing 
everything goes down really well there. We win that. And then we go to um, Tour of Alberta, Alberta and uh, Canada, and we win that with Rohan Dennis. Mm -hmm. So it was just, is I don't know. I felt like it's just felt rewarded that you could take something that you did full time as an athlete, mm -hmm. and then you were able to apply that as a director and use the same tactics that you learned from, you know, Johan Boynell or Patrick Lefebvre mm -hmm. and put that all into play and then actually have it come into fruition. And that's, I just, that's where I felt the most satisfied really. For someone who doesn't understand necessarily, what does it feel like to ride in a, in a Peloton on a pro race? Is there a feeling you can describe for us? So, cause you get on the TV, just, just <laughs> so just to clear up that it, it's a lot of people in a small space riding extremely fast in most cases. Is there, is there a feeling that it, it gives you that you could relate to us? Well, if you're raising in somewhere like Holland, it's, there's so much road furniture. We call it road furniture. Those are like bike lanes, roundabouts, all kinds of like different obstacles in the roadway that mm -hmm. you don't have here in the U.S. So you're basically playing Frogger. This is just this video game that where <laughs> you have to like get around all these obstacles on the bike with, 150 people around you going, you know, 30 miles an hour and hoping that everyone can handle their bike as well as you can. Mm -hmm. uh, some people adapt to it. Some people grow up doing it from the time they're like, mm -hmm. you know, 13 or 14 years old Surely. to getting, you know, adults who are like 24 years old. They just got their first contract and they're from the U S but they never ridden in a bunch like that. They have a hard time adapting. Right. Like it starts at a young age and, I, if, if I think everyone can remember like their first days as a bike racer suiting up as a, I guess the starting level used to be category five or something. And they mm -hmm. put you in this category five road race and you're in your kit. You have no idea how to handle your bike. And about every five minutes, there's a crash that can be, um, pretty much the same as the stage one in the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not easy and those skills are hard to pick up. No doubt. So you mentioned crashing, Chan. What, uh, how, how many have you been involved in roughly? And have you, how's your body? Have you broken things over the years racing? I have, I've broken numerous bones. I know that I vividly remember crashing and I think it was 2002 and, uh, four days of Dunkirk, uh, breaking my elbow, having to, not be able to finish that race because of the broken bone going back to the United States training with a cast on, on my left arm and just sitting there going, how am I going to, you know, perform at nationals at us pro. Mm -hmm. And this was 2002. I was six weeks on my own in a cast, mm -hmm. but I was training my butt off. Like people didn't know it, but I was being motor paced like every other day. I was putting in six hour rides and then the arm started getting better. Um, there were a couple warm up races before us pro and I did okay. But then we hit us pro in 2002. I was supposed, I was working for George Hancapi. Uh, Frankie Andreo was our, I believe. Yeah. He was our director and he's calling the shots from the team car. And I was like, Frankie, it's like, we'd already done like a hundred and, 40 miles into the race or something like that. And I was like, Frankie, I feel good. 
I'm going to attack the next time up the climb. Mm -hmm. And he was like, sure, go for it. Just know that if George catches back up, you're going to work for him in the sprint. I was like, yeah, I'm fine with that. Well, I attacked and only one or two other guys came with me. One was Canadian. One was American, Danny Pate. So technically to become the U S pro champion, I only needed to beat Danny Pate. Um, so we come to the line in Philadelphia and back then Philly was probably the biggest race in the United States. And I was like, I just have to beat Danny Pate in the sprint. That's all I have to do. And I'll get right. the Jersey and it all worked out. I got the Jersey. I was U S pro champion. And that all comes back to that me breaking my elbow in four days of Dunkirk. Cause that probably would have never happened had I not been sent home to do the specialized training that I ended up doing. Right. That's incredible. Um, just a couple of highlights that I don't want to overlook these, but in 2000, you were with Mape. You you came in 17th in the general classification in the Giro d'Italia, one of the biggest uh, races in the world. 2002, you're, you're second in the U.S. Pro Championships, first in the National Championship Road Race Elite. You were the first in the team trial stage one in the in the Volta Ciclista a la Catalunya. Catalunya, yeah. Messed that up, I'm sure, but that's you had an incredible t uh time trial team there, but you guys came in first in stage one. Let's talk about um, U.S. Postal quick since since they came up early, but when you're on U.S. Postal with with Lance, what's the what's the general vibe on the team and how's that look? How's that? How's that general team concept work when you're on that team? Postal was is locked down. There wasn't a lot of freedom. Uh, there was more freedom on my pay to, you know, go into the, we call it the final of the races where you're trying to get into the last 50 K of the race and just throw down everything you got left in you throw down just attack after attack and try and win the races at postal. You had a little bit of freedom to do that, but the program obviously was, you know, tailored towards Lance winning the Tour de France every year. Mm -hmm. And it built, you know, every race, build off of the one prior to it to be able to get the team and Lance into perfect form for day one of right. the Tour de France. So the experience in general, when I look back on it, like with Johan Bornell and, and Lance was, it was a great experience. I learned tons and it just, for me, I don't think it was the perfect team at, cause it's like lessons learned when right. you go back, you go back in time and you look at things and I'm like, I should have stayed at my pay my entire career. Mm -hmm. And Patrick LaFell was right. It's like, wherever you go, you're stepping down, dude. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I should have listened to that guy. Was Johan Bernil a, a good guy to race for? Yeah, he's he's incredible. I mean, he knows so much. He's tactically, like, he's he was the best. I mean. Is that what makes him unique is that he understands tactics in a way most people don't? Yeah, he does. Because he's Belgian, but he's. It's that international flavor. He's raced everywhere. He's mm -hmm. led. He's he beat Miguel Indurain in the, a stage in the Tour de France. I mean, yeah, the guy's the guy was a legit bike racer, and then he became a brilliant director. So awesome. I have to ask because people who watch this will only wonder uh, doping when you're on postal or before. You can tell say whatever you want, Chan, but. We all know what happened with Lance. How was in your mind? What can you can you can you talk about that a little bit and how whatever whatever it is you can share with us and how that affected you or didn't affect you or what you saw or didn't see? Can you speak to the doping? Well, it, the thing is that people always come to the assumption that doping was like one person on the team does it, so obviously 
they think the entire team's doping or the doctor for the team is providing, you know, banned substances for the entire team. But, and back then that's not the way it worked. It's guys, individual pros were going out and seeking these like sketchy doctors from Spain, Italy, wherever that may be, hiring them and giving them 20% or so of their salary. Oh, wow. And yeah, it wasn't cheap. And Mm -hmm. you had a choice, like, yeah, you want to, you're already, I mean, to get to that level, you have Mm -hmm. to be awesome. You have to have many national championships under your belt that you held the title or Mm -hmm. you performed without substances. And then you get to that point where, okay, you make the choice. Do you want that one or two percent extra? Or do you want to race like we call it Paniagua, which means bread and water mm-hmm. and stay where you are. Some guys made that choice of, yeah, I'm going to privately hire X doctor. I'm going to give him 20% of my salary and you know, I'm going to get that one to 2% extra. But I think what the general public doesn't understand is that you can't make a donkey a thoroughbred. Right. And so if you're already a thoroughbred, that was my motto is just, you know, believe in yourself mm-hmm. and you know, you're, you can take it as far as you want, but it was the thing that sucked is that like you were getting these guys that I know they weren't very good, but all of a sudden they were on another level. Right. And you're just like, that's just not right. That dude's, I knew him as an amateur. He was not that strong. And now mm-hmm. like he's destroying me. Yeah. Well, I'm not Oprah, as you clearly know, but I'm asking, did you have to make that choice as far as EPO or any of the doping scenarios that we're going I, on? I, if, if I wanted, well, I did want to win the Tour of France, but I did, I guess, and I wanted it bad, but not to the extent of blood doping. Right. I just like just taking blood out and putting it back in just wasn't something that I that was too far. It wasn't encouraged by by Johan or anybody on your team. It was just like if you if you're gonna do it, do it, stay private. Or was it encouraged at all? It wasn't. I wouldn't say encouraged. I would say that if a rider was gonna undertake that, they didn't need the encouragement to do so. Fair, fair. Okay. Um, you retire. Finally, you retire from pro cycling. And the next chapter in your life comes aboard. You you directed a development team in Belgium, and then ultimately Slipstream, which you which you already mentioned. Um, this this is happening, and then another thing happens to you. You are you're you're living in Austin at this point, right? And you are introduced to potentially working for the Austin Police Department. Uh, how did this come to happen? So yeah, that it was well prior to that in two thousand seven or eight. I took the the job with USA Cycling. To, okay. I overlooked a lot, a big chunk. I'm sorry. I didn't want to. <laughs> yes, please continue. Well, yeah, there's just this bridge from yes. 2007 to 2014 <laughs> that I had the opportunity to work with USA Cycling and direct their, their kind of as a co-director of the national team okay. and then be the manager for their trade team, which was VMG, um, Hollow Esco Partners, mm-hmm. which was awesome guys out of the Bahamas who, totally to this day still back cycling mm-hmm. and I became really good friends with them and helped you know I ran the team as a DS as a manager and that just kind of 
um, turned in, evolved into me working for Slipstream. Um, Mark Holowesco, Stefan Holowesco, really good friends with Jonathan Vodders. Right. And so Jonathan called me up, I think it was in 2008 or something like that. He's like, hey, I need to have an under 23 team for my world team. I want you to run it. Will you do it? And I was like, yeah, sure. Let's go for it. So that started the under 23 team, um, which was back then the spon title sponsor was Garmin. It's currently EF now. And I did that all the way until 2012 or so. And then I, I guess I graduated into the world team and, and started working in the world tour. But at the same time, the challenge for me was always, okay, as a director, you're normally not, you don't have the same luxury as a rider who's getting two to three year contracts at a time. You're going every 12 months, you're up mm -hmm. for renewal. And I was like, do I want to do this? Like until I'm whatever old, old you know, mm -hmm. every single 12 months, like having to negotiate another contract. I mean, I can do it and I enjoy the sport, but I started riding with some friends who are on APD mm -hmm. and they're like, Hey, ABD pays well. Do you know that? And I was like, no, how much they pay. And, and it's like, that's not bad. And he's like, and they're like, you know that you get health insurance and a pension and you get to do cool work and all this stuff. I was like, mm, that's interesting. You want some stability in your life. Yeah. Your it, it, life. It's, it, I mean, it's government work. It's, mm -hmm. it's stable. Um, so I looked into it and I put in my application and I was accepted. And from 2014 until, and that's what I've been doing since then. Really? I got to believe, forgive me, but you got to be one of the best bike cops to ever live based on your pre previous life. I mean, can you share with us any, any tales from the, from the scene? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I teach the police mountain bike school at the Academy as well. So they, at APD, they knew that, okay, well, I guess he's an asset. I mean, he rides his bike all the time. He knows how to handle his bike. Can he ride his bike and chase bad guys at the same time and do everything right in the process? And yeah, I mean, I've been in numerous pursuits and, you know, where some major felonies going off and I'm on my bike and I have to get there fast. Mm -hmm. And it's about like knowing how to get from point A to point B safely fast and then taking a subject into custody that's just committed a felony without excessive force mm -hmm. and also not getting yourself hurt at the same time so it's a really fine balance and you really everything's kind of on the line still for sure so you're not jumping you're not like jumping off your bike onto a suspect based on your i mean it's not quite like that but you're getting there quickly maybe quicker than the the cop the cars because of your agility on a bike, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, because you can take sidewalks, you can take mm -hmm. alleys. You, a lot of the stuff you're doing is at night and it's yeah. very dark. And yeah, you do need to know how to dismount your bike quickly. Mm -hmm. And you need to know how to approach the suspect. And then you need to see if the suspect's armed. Right. What are you going to do? What's your level of force are you going to use? Mm -hmm. Or are you going to have to bring it way back down because this isn't a call or anything like that. Sometimes you just don't know exactly what you're going into. For sure. Um, you have, uh, let's see, 2014, you started that. So you've told me in times, or we've talked before, you've run into like Bezos several times in Austin, just walking out of his building, things of that nature. You've probably seen 
uh, some of some of the friendly faces around Austin doing that. Are are you are you uh, a known entity on on the streets in Austin because of wh- who you are and what you what you're doing? Uh, occasionally. So I'll be sitting there with some of the guys on my shift at like we have these um, gro- small grocery stores called Royal Blue, mm-hmm. and we're like, let's go get water. We're really thirsty or whatever, and we'll take a break and we'll sit down. And someone I'll walk up to my shift mates and be like, Hey, do you know this guy at APD? His name's Chamit Cray. Mm-hmm. And I'll just sit there and, and they'll be like, yeah, I know him. Uh, and I've heard eventually of him. they'll introduce me to him, et cetera. But that's great. Um, there that's usually those people though were, are in the cycling world, mm-hmm. you know, and then they found out that I became a cop locally. It's a huge cycling community, Austin, obviously, uh, you know, Lance's uh, habitation there has made it a, big, a bigger scene, but lots of people cycle down there. So it, it's a huge community for people like you, uh, working wise, and then just for recreation. Recreationally, you are still doing triathlete type stuff. In fact, you just ran a Boston Marathon recently, right? I did. I ran it actually. Tw- I ran it in October, which was the makeup year for 2020 because it, everything was locked down. So. Then they had it again in April. Mm-hmm. So I raced it in October and April. How'd you do in April? April went better than October. Uh, October was good. I ran like a 259. It was solid, but it, I suffered for sure going through the Newton Hills because my hamstring started getting tighter. I think I had a little bit of a hamstring injury going into it. Uh, the mileage was good, but training through the Texas summer for the October one was brutal. Um, but then I was like, okay, they opened up registration again for the April one. I was Mm -hmm. like, I know I can go faster and I put in the miles again, but this time the difference was I was putting the miles in during the winter time. Right. So the miles were higher quality. I went into the race injury free and like we started and I don't know, I just, I was on a great day. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you're just on a great day. I look down, I'm like. 6:30 first mile. I was like, "That's good. That's a little bit faster." 6:30 than- mile. Okay. I was like, "That's a little bit faster than what it needs to be," but I'm like, my perceived exertion is really low. And then I kept hitting. I was like 6:30, 6:35, creep up to 6:40 sometimes, back down to like 6:35. And I was like, "Okay, well, I guess I'm just gonna go with it." And I ended up hitting Newton Hills, and I remember um, it was the. Naval Academy had a team and there were like five guys and they're all in Naval Academy like kit and they're talking. They're like, here are the Newton Hills. These are a bitch, man. I was like, yeah, I remember them from October, but let's Mm -hmm. go. And there's there are three hills that are they're challenging because they come at like 17 miles Mm -hmm. and you can lose pace big time when you hit those. And my goal is like, okay, no matter what, I don't want to run any of these miles under seven for these three miles where these climbs are in Newton and I kept hitting them. None of them went above seven and all the Naval Academy guys, they were just, it, the, we were, they were getting shattered because at first they were all running together and talking. Mm-hmm. But then I come um, off the Hills, start coming into Boston proper. And I look next to me and I think it's on my right. And the guy running next to me, it says NYPD. I was like, this is cool. Oh, yeah. This is very random. And we like, 
finish almost the same time, like two hours and 51 minutes or something. 251. Like. And, um, that's fantastic. I was like, wow, I just dropped a significant amount of time from October to now. Mm -hmm. But for me, it comes down to like, I was healthy, uh, no hamstring injury and putting in just better mileage because the temps were so much cooler in the winter time. Well done, man. That's fantastic. All right, and getting, coming to the last part of your, uh, your of your interview today, uh, what are you doing these days? You just become the director of a new team. Something magical seems to be transpiring, and you're part of it. What's going on these days? Well, as you know, uh, Rockstar Racing is the team that I um, was asked to direct in 2022, and my first you know gig back was Tour of Gila. And I had a great experience there. And I was like, I still love this stuff. I mean, I still enjoy directing. I still enjoy being with the riders. I enjoy setting the tactics for the day. And I and being around these people is all just a super positive environment. Um, and then I was like, and then there was this rider there who is going to ride for us in 23, Emily Marcolini, who was not supported at the race, had asked us prior to the race if we could help her out just with giving her water bottles like so that you know she would be able to survive the race well she did a little bit more than survive it she actually won the hardest stage there mm -hmm. and i was like here you have like one of the fastest females in north america coming over to our airbnb to retrieve the bottles that she gave us so that she can take all empty bottles back and refill them for the next morning mm -hmm. and then give them back to us with zero support and and we're like man we'll help you out however we can we'll do we'll we'll even make your bottles <laughs> i don't care but uh, i guess i uh, this cool relationship formed and then mm -hmm. things just started falling into place and we just started signing like these really big names that they're they're at this level where they're good enough to be in a world team. Mm -hmm. But I think like for 23, they want to showcase themselves. And we're like, we're going to give you the platform. We know how good you are. Maybe you didn't get the support that you needed in you know, 21 and 22, but 23, you're going to have it. And you're going to be able to launch on this platform. So, so this Roxa racing team is set to become a, uh, na a pro national team next year. With this one of this Emily's one of these women you talk about. How many members of the team will there be? Uh, so far, we have eight signed. We're looking at signing two more. Two more. Um, and obviously, some people know this. The Tour de France Femme just completed a few weeks ago. The first one in since 1989. Uh, is it fair to say that women's the women's uh, pro cycling world is on an uptick right now because of this? And maybe. There's more to come. I mean, women's cycling over the years has struggled. Is it is it fair to say that there seems to be some in increased interest in the sport right now? I, I would say it's completely turned the corner. Beautiful. Um, just, I was, during the Tour de Femme, I was in Holland. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Amonique won the Tour de Femme. Um, a lot of Americans probably don't even know who she is unless you follow the sport closely, but... Over there, like on the most popular talk shows, like right after the Tour de Femme finished, she was in the spotlight. So, Amy Van Vluten? Yes. 
Yeah. Tell me more about her real quick. Sorry. She's an incredible rider. The way she destroyed the field in mm-hmm. the, the last She's a season. celebrity in, in the. She's in, a complete celebrity in Holland. And so is Voss. But like they're. Marianne Voss, you're speaking. Yes. Of. They're basically like household names over there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they call Voss a goat and she legit is. And then you have Amonique who comes in the Tour de Femme in the last two days. Like the way that she rode was just incredible. I mean, she just mm-hmm. destroyed the field, and you're like, "This, this is where women's racing is going," and it's, it literally has turned the corner. And I think for the next decade, it's going to be the the thing. Will Roxo Racing see itself in racing in Europe someday? Is our, that the, part of the goal? Our goal is to move from women's pro continental to women's uh, world team, mm-hmm. and I think with you involved JW and then getting some more guys on board that we're going to make that happen. It's pretty incredible, Chan. Well, they're lucky to have you. Your, your bank of knowledge cannot be overlooked. Um, what, what nationally speaking, women's cycling, is it how healthy a sport is it right now? Does it still need, does the European transition over to, to national over here? What does the sport need to proliferate, proliferate itself? Excuse me. I butchered that word, but what does the sport need? from fans and does it need more fandom, more exposure? It's, these these riders, I mean, I'm they to me, they deserve to be like the marketing efforts that should be put into it mm-hmm. need to increase like tenfold. Uh I mean, like I said, like in Holland, it's there, but for that to happen in the US, just we need to get marketing agencies completely behind mm-hmm. it. Um because the potential's there. It just hasn't been capitalized on yet. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Real quickly, you're married. You have two children. How old are your kids? Uh, 21 and 18. Are they cyclists? So the thing is they kind of rebelled against cycling, but when you put them on classic, the bike, <laughs> when you put them on a bike, it's like, how do you know how to ride so well? Like they mm-hmm. can handle their bikes great. So I mean, if they do want to, you know, take up cycling, then I'll, 100% be behind it, but they're so busy in college right now. And Is all your wife stuff. a cyclist? She's ex-pro, ex-pro and she was won some major races in North America. And like was, I think that's where they get their bike handling from. Very nice. Um, thank you for joining us today. One of the questions we ask our, our guests, aside from marital affairs, family, anything family related, what would you tell us is the best day of your whole life? If you're able to. That's funny. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say it was just like shocked me as like I best day or just say this is pretty badass was that my youngest daughter who's 18 now like when she was uh I think like 12, 11 or something she was Naga world champion mm-hmm. at jiu-jitsu and right. we trained together a lot. And then one day in our house, we were playing around and I was like, she's starting to get kind of like really good. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm not holding back that much. And she puts this rear naked choke on me <laughs> and I'm like, dude, she wasn't letting go. And I was like, this is like, she's freaking trained now. Like, and I was just like, this is so cool. That's so. awesome. Great answer. Great answer. Uh, you meant, and I forgot to mention one thing is you got pulled into MMA training, part of your training, but you fought, you have fought one MMA fight. 
uh, in your life. Tell us briefly about that, and then we'll we'll get get you out of here. Uh, yeah, that was a that was a big part of my life. I still follow the sport. I just became a a hobby that I put a lot into. Uh, training up to two to three hours a day of mixed martial arts training. And at one point in time, I got the opportunity. They're like, hey, there's a cage fight. Uh, they need guys. I, we think you're ready. Do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. Um, okay, we'll talk to the guy, the promoter. We'll see if we can get you in. They got me in. I represented the mixed martial arts gym that I was training at. And the fight, the guy, um, I fought my opponent had 10 fights. I had zero. So he had more experience, but... The fight went deep into you know into the third round and we were only fighting three rounds it wasn't championship fights go for five but obviously this was an amateur fight we're in the third round and on points we're pretty even uh he throws i think it's at two minutes and something into the third round he throws a good overhand right lands it i i hit the ground he mounts, starts ground and pound, and I'm trying to escape, which I still to this day think I was going to escape, but the uh, um, ref start, stops the fight. Mm -hmm. And so it was a technical knockout, and I got up. I was fine. I wasn't dazed. I was like, why'd you stop the fight? Uh, and then that was that. Was that. Awesome so. stuff. <laughs> Shane McRae, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. You're a fascinating uh, guy. We wish you luck with Rockstar Racing. I think they're in great shape with you as their, one of the directors. I uh, can't wait to see what happens with the team, but you got an awesome opportunity ahead of you. Thank you for what you do for the police department. Uh, thanks for joining us, and thank you, Captex Bank, for sponsoring all this. We appreciate the time, man. Likewise. Appreciate everything you've done. Roxo Media House.